This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Clearing is a show about crime and the trauma that can result from crime. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Well, Mr. Edwards, you, you made reference in your, in your letter to us you very well knew Billy Lavaco and Judith Straub. How well did you know them? I mean, I knew them very well. In August 1977, that young couple, Billy and Judy, they went to make out at a park in a small town outside of Akron, Ohio. She was 18, he was 21. They were found the next day, shot to death, and left in some tall grass. Billy's car was parked nearby. Judy's shoes and purse were still inside. The case went unsolved, and then cold for 33 years. No clues, no suspects. Until a letter arrived in the office of the Summit County Prosecutor in April 2010 from a jailhouse informant. He was saying that a guy he was serving with in Wisconsin was bragging about a double murder. To the cops, it sounded like it could be that long, unsolved case. As we're kind of, you know, the next few days, as we're trying to figure out how we're going to go about attacking this or, or checking into this lead, we get the second letter. Now, this one's from Edwards. This is John Canterbury. He's retired now. But back in 2010, he was the detective responsible for this cold case. And I read the letter and he says that, you know, he's got information. He wants to talk to us. And in that letter, he makes a reference that when we're done talking with him, we're going to want to put a needle in his arm. This is The Clearing. I'm Josh Dean. Episode three, Give Me the Needle. If you remember back at the end of episode one, Ed Edwards is in jail in Wisconsin. He's there because his daughter April provided information to a detective. That tip led to Edwards' arrest in the fall of 2009 for the murders of two other teenagers, Tim Hack and Kelly Drew. By the time he sent that letter to John Canterbury, Edwards had been locked up for eight months, but he still hadn't confessed to the Hack and Drew murders. His court-appointed lawyer was preparing the case for trial, planning to do what defense attorneys do, fight the charges. But Edwards had other ideas. He knew he was going to get convicted. He didn't want to do his time in Wisconsin. He wanted to come back, quote-unquote, home. Edwards had been an itinerant guy pretty much his whole life. He'd lived in dozens of places and seemed to be constantly unsettled. But now, he wanted to go back to the one place he considered home, Ohio. It's where he was born, where all his kids were born, too. John Canterbury was in high school when Billy Lavaco and Judy Straub were murdered. But it was an infamous case still Norton's only unsolved homicides when he joined the force. Norton is the jurisdiction where the murders took place. Every new cop learned about them. You as a rookie officer are, are told, you know, hey, you know, there was a double homicide in this park in 1977. It's never been solved. You know, and you're a young cop and you think, well, you know, I'm sure they investigated the best they could and perhaps this person will be caught someday. Perhaps they won't. Police did charge a man a few years after the murder but a grand jury refused to indict him. The evidence just wasn't there. And then the case went cold for 33 years. Last fall, April, Jonathan, and I spent a few days driving around northern Ohio, visiting places where April used to live. We stopped in to see Canterbury at his house, near Akron. Even though he's retired, he still works security in the courts. He keeps himself together. He looks a little like Wilford Brimley, if Wilford Brimley lived to weights. Anywhere in your paperwork is my dad's name mentioned at all as as being interviewed or talked to? Absolutely nowhere. And that is an extensive file. Uh, the detectives back during that time interviewed uh, probably 200 people. There's, you know, just a ton of people. Nowhere is Edward Wayne Edwards mentioned. And their house was only three or four miles away, right? Exactly. So the first useful tip in 33 years points to this new suspect, Edward Wayne Edwards. And that tip comes from Edward Wayne Edwards. Within weeks of getting Edwards' letter, Canterbury drives to Wisconsin with an investigator for the Summit County Prosecutor's Office. 
They show up at the jail and see their suspect for the first time. He's in an orange jumpsuit and seems very eager to talk. You remember that letter, Mr. Edwards? Sending that to us here? Yeah, let me read it. Okay, sure. Canterbury kept a copy of this interview and gave it to us on a flash drive at the end of our visit. That's what you're hearing now. They offer to pull Edwards closer to the table to get a better look at the letter, but that's not possible because his chair is bolted to the floor. Well, Mr. Edwards, you, you made reference in your, in your letter to us that you very well knew Billy Lavaco and Judith Straub. Billy, okay, now I remember that name. I forgot his name. How well did you know them? I mean, I do it very well. Their, their hangout was up there at the pool table. Sure. I played pool with uh, Billy, what's his last name? Lavaco. I played pool with Billy uh, up there many times, and then he was over at the house. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, I knew him, yeah. Edward says he and Billy did some carpentry work together. Sometimes, the kid came over for parties at the Edwards' house. This is that house in Doylestown, across from Diane Slaughter, April's old babysitter. Canterbury told us that he and the investigator were both a little flummoxed by the whole thing. This unsolicited confession by mail, or whatever it was, it wasn't normal. What precipitated you to write this letter? Let's just say I'm getting old and tired. Can I be straightforward with you and frank with you? Yeah. Are you are you looking to come back to Ohio? Yeah, I want to go back to Ohio. I'm, my up here, I'm telling you. Yeah, go ahead and you know, I'll go back there. Take me for you convict me, you give me the needle. <laughs> Regardless of what happens to you in Wisconsin, I am convinced, without a shadow of a doubt, we can bring you back to Ohio and we can serve the rest of your remaining days in the state of Ohio. But for that to happen, Canterbury needs to get his county prosecutor an actual confession on tape. And even though Ed Edwards has made clear that he wants to cooperate, it's all still a little hard to believe. Canterbury figures he's got to work with him a little, appeal to Ed's narcissism. You're a very intriguing fellow, and I'm very intrigued by you, Mr. Edwards, and I can do one of two things. I can give you a lot of recognition, or not. I don't know what's recognition here. I'm, will, I'm willing to do work with you. If, if you're looking for another book deal, no, no. Hollywood, no. I've been offered those. No, I'm not interested. Okay. Mr. Edwards, let me bring you back okay. to the letter. What went wrong with Judy Straub and Billy Lavaco? The interview that unfolds over the next two hours and 45 minutes is nothing like the one 10 months earlier with Chad Garcia in Louisville, when Edward sat across from a rotating cast of cops for eight hours and didn't say anything useful. Now, with very little prompting, he spills everything. Judy was just the wrong place at the wrong time. Billy was a nice kid. I liked him. I really did. But he had problems. At that time, my daughter was quite young, my daughter April. But uh, you like to handle her inappropriately. Yeah. I never knew that my dad knew. I never told anyone. Ever, ever. So according to April, this is true. Billy did touch her inappropriately. But she was very young, and she's mostly buried the memories. Lavica was never charged. And she had no idea at all that her father truly knew that anything had happened. Edwards tells Canterbury that he saw something that disturbed him during one of those parties at the house. Well, everybody's drinking, having a good time, and everything. The kids were in bed, most of it. But I don't know why I went to the bedroom, but he was in there, and uh, I didn't catch him doing anything at the time. But it was obvious that he handling her or whatever. It was the bedroom right up at the top of the steps. I remember my dad um, calling me. He was at the bottom of the steps. After Billy had, I was on Billy's back, he had been touching me. And my dad called up and he called me down. 
and he was just very quietly and very gently. He said, I'm not upset. I'm not mad, but I need you to tell me the truth. Um, and I just denied it. I think I think basically because I didn't want him to get in trouble. Like, I, I felt that he would be in trouble. I didn't want to believe this, but I kept an eye on him over the next year or so. And it seemed like <clears throat> every time he got around her, he was trying to molest her. It was very obvious. A normal person might have gone to the police, but not at Edwards. That's when I had made up my mind. My mind functions a little different than most people. If you missed that, what Edward said was, my mind functions a little different than most people. Look here, if somebody else has got it, went to the police. You mess with one of mine, it's, no, you don't, don't mess with one of my children. And, uh, it just started boiling inside and kept boiling and and uh, I, I guess I had made up my mind what I wanted to do probably a week. As he presented it to me was he knew that Lavaco and Straub went to this park after the bars closed on Fridays and Saturday nights. They were boyfriend, girlfriend. Uh, they'd went there to make out. So he was sure to find Lavaco there that night. Remember that park we visited with April in the last episode? The one her dad took them to when she was a little girl? That hike that ended with them going off the trail and stumbling upon what appeared to be a crime scene? That's the park Canterbury's talking about. It's called Silver Creek. It's where Edwards planned to kill Billy Lavaco. On August 6th, 1977. He had a single shot, 20 gauge shotgun. He got the gun. He reaches into a drawer. I believe he said in his kitchen, if I remember correctly, where he kept shotgun shells. He just reached in, grabbed a handful of shells, put them in his pocket. Edwards rode his bike to the park and hid in the weeds, waiting for the young couple to show up from the bar. They pulled in. He could hear the music playing in the car. Now, we're talking August, so the windows are down. He hears the music playing as they pull in. He, in fact, as he explained it to us, he could hear them arguing in the car. They pull up and park. Very dark. Lights are off. As I said, Judy was at the wrong place at the wrong time. I was warning them. And it almost happened. I mean, he got out of the car to take a leak, and I thought this would work perfect. Where he goes to urinate is very near where Edwards is waiting in the high weeds. And boom, Edwards is on Lavaco. Lavaco sensed that somebody was there. He couldn't see who it was or could tell what it was, but he knew something. So Lavaco starts walking back to the car very quickly. Edwards is now approaching him. And when Lavaco gets in the car, closes the door, the window's down, and he closes the door, at this point, Edwards is at the door with the shotgun on him. I told him if he didn't put the window down, why? Uh, he's going to have to shoot. Anyways, he, he got out. They both got out of the car. Billy now realizes who it is. He realizes that it's Edwards. What are you doing? You know, there's a conversation back and forth. Now, he's holding Lavaco and Straub at gunpoint. First, he thought he was get robbed because he uh, took his wallet out of his pocket. He said, here, and he took his wallet out and put it under the guitar. Lavaco starts bargaining with him or trying to bargain with him. She got paid today. She worked for a dentist office. She got paid today. Take her money. He mentioned $500 for her purse. He walked him over into the field. Yeah. I had... Uh, we got out there. I asked Billy, I Billy, you know why we're here? He says, you want money, you want robbers. No, Bill, I said, it's not it at all. And uh, so I told him about my daughter. And at this point, Lavaco is again pleading with him, take the car, take the money, just leave us alone, you know. 
you don't have to do this. You know, I told you I never touched your daughter, you know, so on and so forth, but Edwards wasn't having any of it. Remember when I came in the bedroom and yeah, I was, I was just, just, geez, I went in the wrong room. I said, you know, if something's going, if you really want to save your life, tell me what your intention And he, he all stuttered around and, and everything. And I was, I was really, I was really upset. Really, really, really upset. And he shot him. Edward says that Judy just watches this unfold in front of her. Then she turns and tries to get away. Edwards calls her back. I don't know, I should stop. It's the anger she knew. Well, that, well, she was going, and I and I'm walking, get over to her. I put another shell in there, chuck it. And uh, she was about 15 feet away by time. So I shot her, and then I uh, made my exit. I shot her and made my exit. There are a lot of horrifying things about the story, but maybe the worst to me is the way Edwards tells it, in a flat monotone. He is, by all accounts, recalling these events for the first time in 30 years, to two cops. You might expect catharsis, or at least a little emotion. Nope. As he talked about the killings, very open, no hesitation in him whatsoever, he believed he had reason to do what he did, I asked him, you know, Ed, you know, if, if if you suspected this going on to your child, why didn't you reach out to the authorities in Ohio and tell them that, you know, you thought this of Lavaco? And April, I, I, no disrespect to you, but I don't know that Lavaco was doing that. You know, I wasn't there. That's never been investigated. Okay. But his response was, that's my family. I'm responsible for my family. Mr. Edwards, a lot of years have gone by, and you're, you're coming forward 33 years later after the incident. Did you feel remorse? Were you sorry after the case? or? Oh, yeah. I've been sorry for that for a long time because I had, in my mind at the time, okay, I had reason to go mm-hmm. But the girl, she didn't deserve it. She just happened to be there. Considering he set it up, he knew where they were going to be. He was lying in wait. If his plan was just to kill Billy, he's walking into a situation where he probably knows he's going to have to kill the girl because he's going to kill her in front of a witness no matter what. So, like, did you doubt that story at all, that, like, maybe he always planned to kill them both? Well, uh, yeah, I, I I see what you're saying. And, and, yeah, he probably did. When he went there that night, he probably knew he was going to have to kill her as well. I was going to say, no, he, uh, knowing my dad, he he knew all along he was going to have to kill both of them. If he knew that's where they went for, you know, to make out, he knew he was going to have to kill both of them. There was no, I, I, I don't think that he thought he was only going to kill Billy. When he's done confessing, Edwards tells the cops why he's so eager to help with the case that, on the heels of Wisconsin, basically makes him a serial killer. So, my, um, I want to ask a question now. I'm here talking to you. You gonna get me back to Akron? I gotta take all this back and he's gonna we're gonna sit down with my boss. And that's the purpose of this. I wanna go I wanna go back to Akron. So if I get the needle, I get the needle. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I wanna I wanna go back to Akron. That's the whole purpose. Well, what Edwards hates Wisconsin. Garcia, the jail, the other inmates. He wants to go home to Ohio. But it's not just that. Ed Edwards is caught. And he's not going to confess to the Wisconsin murders and give Garcia the satisfaction. He will never again be free, and he knows it. Canterbury and Garcia, and even April, they all think this is his way of controlling his destiny. Ed Edwards will write the last chapter of the Ed Edwards story. And this last chapter, it's got a twist ending. He wants the state to execute him. But Wisconsin has no death penalty. The murders of Tim Hack and Kelly Drew are not going to get him killed. But confessing to Canterbury about the Ohio murders, he thinks that will do the trick. Think for a minute, if you haven't already, of the position these revelations put April in. It's one thing to find out your dad killed two teenagers in Wisconsin, like a really horrible, maybe impossible thing to get over. 
But now there are two more murders. And this time, her father is claiming he did it for her. So when you found out that he had died, that your dad had killed him, and, th- and that the motivation for that was like the fact that he'd molested you. I mean, you're a parent, you understand. How do you feel about the fact that your dad was like sticking up for you? Um, After hearing that, I-, I still didn't understand it. I mean, I didn't understand if he thought that, why he didn't go about doing something legally, you know, with the authorities. I, I really didn't understand it. I, honestly, I, I, I don't. I didn't then, and I still don't. Yeah, I mean, I wondered if learning that, like, I mean, this is a completely unfair question to ask you, but, like, if you almost felt guilty at all that he had done it for you, even though you had nothing to do with it, you didn't even know about it, like, do you feel bad about the fact that your dad had done that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, I was shocked. I, I was, I mean, I, I just remember just being shocked. Canterbury goes back to Ohio feeling like his case is cleared. The prosecutor's office issues a press release and papers around America pick it up. And that is how Ed Edwards' public defender in Wisconsin finds out that his client has just admitted to a whole other set of murders. Coming up, Ed Edwards' plan to get himself the needle runs into trouble. That's right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A few weeks after Ed Edwards confessed to Detective Canterbury, an old friend showed up. All right, Wayne, uh... Today is May 3rd, 2010. This is Sergeant Brian Johnston. I'm at the Dodge Correctional Institution in Wappen, Wisconsin, with Mr. Wayne Ed Edwards, or Ed Wayne Edwards. I could never figure out which one was which. This friend Brian Johnston obviously is a cop. He's also from Ohio. They know each other from Geauga County, one of the places where April and her family lived. Remember last episode when we met that Clerk Sharon who gave us the box of cassettes that Edwards recorded? She also gave us a bunch of jailhouse interviews and phone calls. That's where this tape comes from. When he first moved his family to Giaga, Edwards called the local sheriff's office and asked to speak with an officer. So I went down and I introduced myself to Edwards, and he had mentioned that he had just gotten out of the prison in Pennsylvania. And uh, he mentioned that while in prison, he had... Uh, basically uh, became a snitch, and it turned in a couple of guys. Edwards claimed he'd overheard these guys saying they were responsible for an unsolved murder, so he turned them in. And uh, they had relatives in this area, and according to Edwards, he believed that he might be in danger if they found out. So now Edwards wanted the local cops to watch his back. He said he'd repay them by being a kind of narc. He'd look out, tell Brian what the criminals were saying on the street. And he and Brian began to meet regularly for coffee at a gas station near Edwards' house. A little mini-mart, two-pump place. It looked like it was in Mayberry. And uh, I don't even think I had any chairs, but you could go in there and have a cup of coffee. And was he... Did he ever ask for anything for you? Was there any agenda from him? Was he, was he just or just wanting to know that like you liked him in case something came up? Like, did he ever call in a favor? No. No. He, uh, he just liked having that uh, feeling of maybe having a, a policeman in his pocket or a friend that he can call if he got in trouble. From there, a strange chummy relationship developed. Brian liked it, Edwards. Uh, I always told him that he could make a lot of money selling used cars. Uh, I always had a smile, gregarious, just an outgoing type of man. Fast forward a decade and a half. You can still hear that chumminess in the way they talk with each other. I was on you, the don't bull- you don't bullshit me. Oh, you're good. You're good. You're a challenge. 
Brian's got some bad news for his old friend. He's talked with Canterbury and Garcia, and he knows Ed's been working the system to get executed in Ohio. Well, here's what's going on there. I don't know if those guys told you this or not, and I understand they don't get a lot of homicides over there, and they want to, this is big, you know, but that case in 1977, yeah, it's not death penalty. They don't have the death penalty then. Where, in Akron? No, in Ohio. Let me tell you, just listen to what I'm telling you. In 1972, I went online last night, double-checked, the Supreme Court declared death penalty unconstitutional. Yeah. So Ed Edwards isn't going to get the death penalty for the murders of Billy Lavico and Judy Straub. It's a little convoluted, and for our purposes, it's not that important. But the gist is, if you happen to be a guy looking to get executed for murders committed in Ohio between 1972 and 1981, you're out of luck. Brian had been reading about Ohio's very complicated death penalty history. In 2001, they got rid of electrocution because they fried a guy. And they, they didn't do it right. He was fucking cooking in the electric chair. They got rid of it, and now it's all lethal injection. This isn't exactly right, but the details aren't important to Ed's case. This is. If Ed truly wants to be executed, Brian has an offer for him. The two men haven't seen each other for 14 years when Edwards left Ohio. But for that entire time, Brian suspected him of yet another murder. This is going to sound absurd, I know. But even by Ed Edwards' standards, this one's pretty extreme. In 1995, when the last of his five kids was out of the house, Edwards took in a local kid who'd been in and out of foster care his whole life. He called him Danny Boy. Ed was proud to have sent three of his five kids into the military, and he pushed that on Danny, too. Danny enlisted in the Army and in 1996 shipped off to Oklahoma. He was 19. But the moment he finished basic training, Danny went AWOL. He didn't turn up for more than six months. A deer hunter found his body half-buried in some woods behind a cemetery. A cemetery that was less than a mile from Ed Edwards' house. Ed wasn't immediately a suspect, but as the investigation continued, Brian Johnston began to wonder about him. And then, one day, Ed skipped town. He never came back. Ever since then, Brian had considered Edwards the prime suspect, he just couldn't prove it. He wasn't the only one who thought this. April says that her siblings had grown suspicious too. They were almost certain their father was involved somehow. But they had no proof either. So 14 years later, when Brian heard about this old friend's arrest, he headed up to Wisconsin with an offer. If Ed wants to be executed, there's one case that'll do it for him. Danny Boy. There is no death penalty for the crime you committed in Norton. However, there is a death penalty for capital murder from 81 on. So, that's the skinny of it. Whether or not they told you that, shame on them. No, they didn't tell me anything about the death penalty. But I am telling you, Wayne, honest, I'm not lying to you, the crime that you committed in Doylestown, you cannot get death penalty for. Because at that time, the fucking death sentence was repealed. You can't de- put a de- you can't extradite me back to Ohio to try me? Not to try it. You're gonna die here in prison. And you can't be executed in Ohio if you're serving a sentence here, a life sentence, you know what I mean? You gotta get a big issue. Now let's talk, let's just get right into it. Listen to what I'm going to tell you, Wayne. Brian walks him through what it'll take. He has to plead out in Wisconsin, then plead out in Norton, then confess to Danny Boy's murder. After all that, finally, he'll get his needle. I'm I'm going to be straight up. I think, for the most part, over the years, you were a decent human being. I think you raised a great family, you got kids that are successful, April's a good person, your wife's a nice lady, but along the way, I think you had periods, and I'm just talking man to man, I think you had periods when your brain was broken, it didn't function right, this is crazy shit, you did some crazy shit in Doylestown, you did some crazy shit up here in Wisconsin, 
bottom line is some families need some closure. Your good family needs some closure. It's better they know you did something than always fucking wondering if you're responsible for something. I'll tell you, I think if you are bound and determined, Wayne, to get executed, you need to tell me the truth. And I know what the truth is, and so do you. And we will charge you with capital crime on Danny's death. And you can go to death row in Youngstown. And I promise you, you'll get the fucking death row. How can I go to death row in Youngstown? You just told me I can't be extradited back there. I'm not finished yet. Part of this deal is you're just going to have to plead to this shit here and get it behind you. And have them cut a deal with our prosecutors in Ohio. Do a three-way deal. You admit to what you did here, Danny boy, and you've already done Norton. Uh, you know, you're, uh, you're saying, you're, I'm confused, and I don't like what I'm hearing. I'm upset. Okay. I'm upset. Well, let's start at the beginning and work through it. Edwards isn't ready to work through it, because John Canterbury sat at the same table and said the same thing, that confessing to an old murder would get him back to Ohio. So now he's not even sure he should trust his old friend. I wouldn't have done any of this if I can't be extradited back. That's a, that's a stupid, stupid move on my part. I just don't think Wisconsin's going to let you go if they got to try you. Yeah, but like you said, i got to plea here, and I'm not going to plea here. You get me back there for the death penalty or to go to court, and then I'll work with you. I need more than that. No. I'm here trying to tell you you can get executed well, in Ohio. Well, as I said, I would not even have talked to Norton if I'd have known. Again, this is a negotiation between a murderer who wants the death penalty and his old cop friend is trying to help him get it and clear one off his own books in the process. Anyway... I've always wondered, why didn't Edwards just go to Brian and tell him about Danny? Why confess to the Silver Creek Park murders first? I, I personally think that he wanted to never admit that he killed Danny because of his uh, children. You know, they, they, they went to school with him. I think that was his motivation. That it would make him look worse. The Danny boy thing just looks so gross. Whereas, whereas the other murder is very similar to the one in Wisconsin. Emotionally uh, charged murders up there. Even for Ed, this particular killing crossed a line. So begins an odd summer of negotiations. From the outset, Brian has made it clear. Ed Edwards will get what he wants, but he has to confess. You've got to tell me what you're going to work with me for. Are you going to admit to the Danny boy, Edwards? We can get you back there and promise you. You get me back there vision. and I'll take care of Danny boy. That's a promise. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. That, I, need to t- I need to tell me that you will admit to it, not take care of it. I will, I'll admit to it. Still, Brian needs assurance. Facts that no one else would know. Give me something. That no. I know, all I want you to do is just give me a little bit that I know that first you know. Of all, I, first of all, you don't know anything. No, I, I know more you think. No, you don't. The two bicker. They question each other's motives. But even in the thick of this life or death negotiation, Brian and Ed rib each other. I gotta go to the bathroom. You stay here a minute and I look at my shit. You go to the bathroom. I'll have the captain watch it. See, you got that thing on there, mate. You sit here all fucking day. You got that thing on. He means Ed's catheter and pee bag. You wanna wanna use it? No. I don't like it that much. He thinks he's taking advantage of the friendship by, like, he thinks he's calling in favors, or, or by dealing with you, he can get what he wants, right? Yeah. How are you using that that relationship? Because listening to the calls, it, it sounds kind of casual at times, even joking with each other, even though the subject matter is really heavy. Well, I think I, I should put myself in for an, an Emmy too, because I uh, I had to come down and play the role, and. You know, it, it sounds like he and I were best friends, but actually I was playing a role of just trying to get what I needed to facilitate my end result. The conversation goes on for two days. When it's over, Edwards understands the game, but he still holds back a full confession. Ed tells Brian that he'll give it, every last detail, when he's back home in Geauga County. He just wants to know that a judge will give him the needle 
and then he can have his last meal a bit early, served by Brian. He wants a main lobster dinner with a loaded baked potato, a 16-ounce prime rib, plus an A&W root beer to wash it down. Diet A&W root beer on account of his diabetes. Oh, and one more thing for the long drive back to Ohio. Just give me a, uh, a bucket of Colonel Sanders chicken, and I'll sit there in the backseat of the car, and I'll just eat my bucket of chicken. Regular extra. Regular. I just want to pause here for a moment to point out how un-Hollywood this negotiation is. Not that there isn't real police work happening, just that it isn't exactly Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter. That the breaking of Ed Edwards involves dumb jokes about catheters and promises of fried chicken buckets has always kind of amazed me. After Brian leaves, weeks go by. Edwards sits in a cell in Wisconsin and obsesses over the injustice of it all. He writes letters, lots of them, and he stews, especially about April and Chad Garcia, the people he feels are responsible for putting him there. His family, like his lawyer, has zero idea that any of this additional confessing is even going on. In one of many letters to April's brother Jeff, Edwards writes, Jeff, I'm sorry, but I will never talk, see, or write to April. I wish you could see all the lies she told this detective. A few days later, he writes to Brian Johnston. Brian, please don't call or tell or ask April anything about me or my case, here or there. She is not a part of me, and I want no part of her. If you do then you're going to find me very hard to get along with. Conversation recorded on June 15th, 2010. Thanks, Stahl. The legal system is rarely in a hurry. For a month, Ed and Brian continue to negotiate by letter and by phone. Hello. No third party calls are allowed. You said goodbye. Brian tells his department's operator to connect calls from Edwards at any hour to his cell phone, and Ed takes full advantage. He often calls three or four times a day. You know, I can't understand what more. I already told you I killed him. What more could you want? I even told you how I killed him. Okay? Mm -hmm. I told you where he was shot at. Uh, He was on his knees. Into the duffel, reaching down in the duffel, and I'll tell you what he was reaching in the duffel bag for. I told him there was cigarettes down in there. You there? Well, you're giving me a little more, but... Who can say what Ed Edwards' motivations ever are? Maybe he's pissed that Brian isn't getting him back to Ohio fast enough. Or maybe he just wants to remind everyone that he's still in control. Whatever the case. Now, here, I want to tell you something else. All right. I, I just finished talking to the Associated Press. They're on their way over here from Madison, Okay. Okay. Uh, this is the first interview I'm giving. I've made up my mind. I can't get to do anybody else. I'll go this way. Well, you go ahead and do that, but they're not going to help you get to death penalty, my friend. Well, they'll they'll uh, at least uh, let it be known. Mm-hmm. If it's a threat, Brian is inviting. So Ed sits down in his orange jumpsuit at the jail. I'm responsible for it, and I am warning the death penalty. Across from him, behind the camera, is a local AP reporter. But it seems that uh, everything that I tell them, I mean, it's substantiated. They know it's the truth and stuff like this here, but they uh, they don't want to, uh, for whatever reason, follow it up. And uh, it's just, uh, that's why I decided that I would talk to you to try and get my point across. The, Edwards lays out a whole terrible story to the public. He says that Danny was stealing from him, which isn't true. He explains how he lured Danny to the cemetery and shot him twice at point-blank range. He didn't know it was coming. He, he did not know that he was going to get shot. I didn't threaten him in any way. I felt bad, but uh, apparently not bad enough that I kept from doing it. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not new to crime. I've been in crime all my life. Uh, and I had made up my mind, I guess, a long time ago that uh, I wasn't going to go back in a penitentiary for just, you know, anything. But, uh, no, I did not feel good uh, about it, and I don't feel good about it now. Otherwise, why I would be asking for the death penalty. you got to remember something else, too. I'm thinking also of my family. I have put my family through, God, 
knows what. They don't deserve it. They're, they're good people. If nothing else, Ed's stunt managed to get under Brian's skin. The tape made the rounds at the Geauga Sheriff's Office. I shook my head, closed my eyes, and put my head down. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe this was going forward. Couldn't believe it because why? It was going against what we were trying to lay out as far as our plan. It Like, we got hit by a cannonball. I think he thought he had been, uh, you know, put into a situation where he wasn't in control and we had lied to him. And I honestly think that he thought my relationship with him was better than these other guys because he and I had had some history together. In a, a convoluted way, he thought that maybe I owed him more respect. And so he felt disrespected and, and giving that interview was like a way to get back at you? I think he was just on impulse. You know, he was mad. He, it was an outburst. After the AP interview, Brian knew he needed to rein Ed in before he screwed everything up. You're going to be brought back home to give your confession, Brian says. Just be patient. Ed is impatient. And he's been keeping a few key details to himself. One thing in particular he thinks might be his leverage. Months after the murder, Edwards returned to the scene and removed a part of Danny's skull. You once said that Danny was shot in the back of the head that Ed was blown away. Remember that? That's what the death certificate says. What's that? Where's his head? We got his head. Huh? We got pieces of it, what's left. You have pieces of his head? Mm Mm-hmm. No, you don't either. Okay. Where'd you get him from? Not from the gravesite. You can tell by the pause in the tape here that Brian is genuinely stymied. Yeah. From, from no, you didn't need it. Okay. Because I know where his head's at. So there's reason right there to get me back there so I can show you. Okay. So what are you going to get me back to now, tomorrow? Pack your bag. <laughs> He's kidding. It's not that fast. But the fact that Ed claims to know where Danny Boy's skull is, and Brian doesn't know, Ed kind of revels in that. And it becomes the focal point for most of their conversations. You have reached a... Hello? I found the head. Huh? I found the head. Is that right? Good. Hey, I gotta ask you a question. What's that? How do you know the head's still there after all these years? Well... Conversation recorded on June 15th, 2010. Anyhow, here's what's going to happen. I just met with the sheriff, the prosecutor, and the lieutenant. Yeah. And uh, work with us, we'll work with you. I've been trying to work with you, Brian. Well, keep trying. I can't tell you. I've got to be there to show you that that's a hit. You just don't understand that. Okay. All right. All right, Brian. You're kind of putting the cart before the horse. You wouldn't even have known about the goddamn head if I hadn't mentioned it to you, okay? Uh-huh. I cannot tell you from here. I can't. I can, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. You get me there, and I'll show you where it's at or whatever. I, 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 I can't do it. I can't do it. Okay. Well, I think you will. Because you don't want. Was anything accomplished? I talked to the prosecutor. He said, if you know where that head is. We need to know. It'll get you back here a lot faster if you tell us where the hell it's at before you get here. Oh, I ain't telling you shit before I get there. When I get there, I'll show you. I'll just tell you what the prosecutor said. Don't yell at yeah, me. If you guys want to know, get me back there. Otherwise, forget it. That's my, that's my uh, case in the hole. Finally, after months of this, Ed offers up something new. I Come on. That. Well, hey, uh, yeah, okay, hey, here, you want something else? Yeah, I did it for the insurance money. Now there, now you got enough. This wasn't some small thing. Insurance money. That was motive. That kicks it up a notch. We're getting close. Yeah, well, we ain't going any further. That's it, Brian. Brian Long suspected that Ed killed Danny for insurance money. He'd taken out a policy when he took him in, and there was a second policy that went active once Danny finished basic training. 
In total, Edwards got $250,000 once the body was discovered and Danny was officially deceased. But he kept swearing that wasn't why he did it. And the head stuff just continued. It just kept going on and on, like some ghastly Laurel and Hardy routine. I know one thing I remember. I put the head in a feed bag. A what? A feed bag. Like uh, chicken feed or stuff like that, you know? Oh, a feed bag. Where'd you put that at? Where'd I put what at? The feed bag. It's with the head. Oh, okay, but where's that at? I don't know. It's with the feed bag. <laughs> I got to tell you something. My lieutenant was sitting there. Say what? After you and I hung up, he goes, you know something? He goes, you two guys got a lot in common. He walked out of the room. <laughs> I reminded Brian about this exchange with his boss after I heard the tape. Yeah, we did. Probably too much in common, but we were just able to communicate. We were on a level of uh, same way in life when it came to communicating. But I'm not a killer. I would hate to have that analyzed by some psychologist or psychiatrist. But uh, yeah, we had a rapport. I'm sitting there with a, a serial killer who ruin a lot of people's lives and yet we can sit and joke you know it's kind of messed up on june 30th 2010 well into month two of this endless haggling brian goes back to wisconsin for a third and final talk he appeals to ed's better angels if he has any let me tell you something about the head before we go i don't know what you think about your family right now that's between you and them. But there's a stigma. I mean, this stuff is all over the newspaper right now. Oh, I know. There's a stigma about the missing head, and it, it portrays you as being somewhat of a monster, besides just being a killer. And I'm just appealing to you as a father so your kids can, you know, at least have something back in that community when they go back to. You know what's crazy? The truth is, Brian didn't even need the head to get Ed back to Ohio. The prosecutor in Geauga County was convinced he had enough already, and the process to bring Edwards home was already in motion. But it wasn't moving fast enough for Edwards. That's why there was all this business about the head. It would have been nice to have. We had enough to move forward. If we had that head, it would absolutely verify what he was saying. Because only the killer would know where that was. Yes. It was almost like a trophy, too. Well, you, we noticed you were basically saying, hey, that's how's that going to play in the media? It starts to make you look like a monster if you like took the head. Yes. Yes. It violates uh, uh, normal thinking. I mean, passion killing is one thing, but removing body parts and uh, skulls is different. Finally, in mid-August, they transfer Ed back to Ohio. Four months after that first letter landed on the desk of the Summit County Prosecutor's Office, on August 23rd, in a very casual, extremely friendly three-hour conversation at the Geauga County Sheriff's Office, Edwards finally confesses everything to Brian. All the gory details. It was always about the money. He acted alone. As for the skull fragments, he'd taken them from the scene so he could toss them into a creek near the property of a guy he was trying to frame. Oh, all falls together now. He should have had me helping you investigate it. Did a pretty good job here, Wayne. You got to admit, got everything down. It was more than enough for the prosecutor to push for Edwards' execution. I mean, I I really helped you as far as becoming a damn good investigator. Yes, you did. Yeah. I mean, you know, hate to put it that way, but that's a fact. You made me work. That's spooky. That is spooky. It's like he's sitting right here talking to me again. But, uh, no, uh, you know, he was taking pride in the fact that he helped me put it together, and we couldn't have done it without uh, his daughter, though. He should be thanking his daughter, not us. On March 8th, 2011... Ed Edwards sat in front of a three-judge panel and listened as his two defense attorneys told the court that their client would not be fighting the prosecution's request for capital punishment. 
No one involved could remember a case where an Ohio defendant had actively sought the death penalty. The situation was so uncomfortable for Edwards' county-appointed lawyer that even after he confirmed with the state he wasn't committing an ethics violation, he still felt uneasy. He didn't want to talk to us for the show, but I did speak to him once three years ago. Defense attorneys, he told me, are supposed to prevent executions, not facilitate them. The judges asked Edwards three times if this was really what he wanted. Finally, they granted his wish. They sentenced him to death. A local news report described Edwards as content, even bored with the proceedings. His execution was scheduled for August 30th, 2011. But less than a month after trial, on Thursday, April 7th, Edwards died at night of natural causes. No one claimed his body. It was cremated by the state. When you found out he died, were you sad at all? I actually remember having a sense of relief because the media had been contacting me about his upcoming execution and that was something I didn't want to deal with. And, you know, the legacy he already passed on to us and then, you know, then being executed on top of that. Um, so I remember thinking it was a blessing that he passed away instead of us having to go through the execution process. Because knowing him, that would have been a bit of a circus, right? He would have probably made that into a big... I can't even... Um, I mean, I can't imagine. I I have thought about that. Different scenarios of what he would have done, just knowing the way that he thinks. And yeah, I'm thinking that would have been a definite circus act. So normally, this is how the story would end. With justice, I guess. With an awful man dying on death row, awaiting execution for the terrible crimes he committed. Except that while he was sitting in his Ohio cell... Ed Edwards had been talking to someone else. A guy who didn't see this conviction as the end of anything, but instead was sure he'd stumbled onto one of the most unbelievable crime stories in history. I forgive you. <laughs> I do want to meet you in person. I really do because... Left on this call. That's the next episode of The Clearing. Clearing is a production of Pineapple Street Media in association with Gimlet. It's produced by Jonathan Menhivar and me. I'm Josh Dean. Our associate producers are Josh Gwynn, Dina Kleiner, and Elliot Adler. Editing by Joel Lovell. Our fact checker is Ben Phelan. Our theme song is Modafinil Blues by Matthew Deere. Music clearance by Anthony Roman. The episode was mixed by Hannes Brown. Special thanks to Christina DeJosa and Ariana Martinez. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. We'll see you next week. <laughs>